The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they need justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And if you think about the uh, kind of cases that have captured the imagination throughout the years, few loom as large as the Charles Manson case, uh, the uh, Tate murder, LaBianca murder, and, and just the Manson family. It, it, it seems to have an eternal fascination just because, well, it was so, so sad, uh, so twisted. And we have a, a new piece of information that has come to light in the form of a book written many years ago, but just uh, recently discovered and added to and, and refined. It's called Inside the Manson Jury, From Deliberation to Death Sentence. And we have the woman who's kind of spearheaded uh, the revival of this and bringing to the public's attention. And we are talking about Deborah Herman. She is a lawyer and she is a journalist and she has worked as co-author on this book inside the Manson jury from deliberation to death sentence, which was originally written by Herman Tubick and his wife, Helen Tubick. Herman was the foreman on the Manson jury. And uh, again, we'll get into details how this was discovered, but uh, quite fascinating. Deborah, welcome to the program today. Yes, thank you for having me. So maybe we should start there. Uh, Mr. Tubick and uh, Mrs. Tubick have both passed, and he was the foreman uh, for the Manson trial, as I understand it. And they compiled a book about that experience, but nobody knew about it. Can you talk to us a little bit about the circumstances surrounding the original writing of the book and, and then how it was rediscovered? Yeah, certainly. Um, back during the Manson trial, uh, the jury foreman, Herman Tubick, had kept copious notes, as many of the jurors did. He was a very interesting but conservative man, took his job very seriously. And in 1973, his wife encouraged him to compile all of his notes uh, on the witness testimony, as well as what his experience was in being sequestered for nine and a half months. This was the first time a jury had been sequestered on a trial for that long. Uh, so they wrote the book. Uh, they told people about it. But then he was very reluctant to, uh, at that time, uh, draw attention to his role on the trial uh, to in any way benefit from it. And so they jointly decided to put it in an envelope, put it in a drawer and leave it there. Um, and uh, what's really amazing is I uh, I don't know if you knew that I co-authored a book um, with Diane Lake, formerly yes. known as Snake, uh, uh, her memoir of being the youngest member of the Manson family. Uh, the book is called Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult and the darkness that ended the 60s. I co-authored that with her and 
became very involved in studying the case, uh, studying her story. And uh, I became a de facto Manson expert. Um, she was not, she was with the cult for the entire time. One of the first members, uh, she was only 14. She did not participate. Do you believe it? She was only 14, did not participate in the murders, but became a, an unwitting confessor. They all told her what happened as she was stuck with them in Death Valley and ultimately she became the final witness against them. So I was already very invested um, in the case. When, uh, when Herman Tubick's daughter discovered this unpublished manuscript, she gave it to her cousin, who is the family uh, historian. He had read my book or Diane, uh, the book that I wrote with Diane and just reached out <laughs> and said, oh, I have this book. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's a piece of history. You know, that's like in finding this rare artifact that can put to rest so many of the remaining questions about Charles Manson, the trial the facts. And so I, I just jumped on it. Um, and, you know, we, I started out just as editor and, and I also am an indie publisher. And then I just became co-author because I, uh, it was such an opportunity. Um, so that's how it happened. <laughs> well, it makes, I, I mean, as you said, I mean, how often do you find something like this in that firsthand account? I mean, he was there in the middle of this. Now, this was specifically for Manson's trial. Is that correct? It was for the trial for the Tate LaBianca murders. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm now actually researching just for my own interest, uh, some of the other trials um, that were related to the case. Um, you know, Manson was also accused of the murder of um, a musician, uh, Gary Hinman. Um, for those who really have studied the whole, you know, Manson um, story, that was a very significant event. Um, and then there was also the murder of a ranch hand. And that trial came separately. But this is uh, the trial where. Uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Charles Manson were all tried for the seven uh, murders that happened between August 8th, 1969 and August 10th, 1969. That was what this was. And, and Herman Tubick was, uh, uh, was the juror and ultimately the jury foreman. And uh, it seems... Uh that the the fact he was elected jury foreman he he must have made a really good impression on his uh, fellow jurors and uh uh seemed uh, like a very st level-headed guy what's funny is there was um one kind of curmudgeon uh on the jury and even though everybody wanted um, Herman to be the jury foreman, he was objecting. He wound up actually being um, elected as jury foreman through a coin toss. 
And so oh. the universe wanted him to be jury foreman. <laughs> and I, you know, it's I, I, really I, a funny story, and it's in it's in you know we refer to it. I, I would think that it would take a very steady hand to do that job because that uh, that was such a sensation uh, in a negative way. But it was uh, so much in the media. It was kind of like if people can remember the OJ murders, I would assume. Uh, you, you know, 1973, I, I was four years old. I don't remember it, but certainly, certainly as a, a student of history, uh, I know it's significant. So it probably would have been right up there with the, the OJ uh, killing uh, of, um, of his wife and, and Ron Goldman. And um, the, the thing is, is that um, it would have taken a steady hand to guide the jury through this, uh, because I, I'm guessing that's why they were sequestered for so long to try to get them away from some of that media coverage and, and, and some of that. Hullabaloo. Oh, it was absurd. Keep in mind, actually, the trial was in 1970, um, 70, 71. Oh, OK. Um, and uh, keep in mind these people, these people who were being, um, it's called voir dire. When they were being questioned to be on the jury, they could have no possible awareness of, of how big this really was. The OJ Simpson case years later was televised. Back in 1970-71, trials were not televised. In fact, uh, the media, um, the uh, everyone, the jurors, the lawyers, they were really not supposed to talk to the media because they wanted to give um, the defendants a fair trial. One of the motions that they made throughout was that they couldn't get a fair trial uh, because of all of the media um, frenzy. The other thing is, for that time, um, it was crazy because people would line up at three, four in the morning to be able to get a seat in in the um, courtroom. This was the biggest news ever. It was the biggest trial ever. And the most uh, this crime, as we as I said in the in the previous book that I wrote, it it really ended the 60s. It put a damper on everybody's sense of safety. It put a massive chill on what was happening in Los Angeles at the time. And it gave people a reason to point fingers at long hair hippie types, even though Manson didn't consider himself to be a hippie. And to say, see, we told you, you know, look what happened. Um, so, yeah, it's it was really it it, it was the first trial of the century uh, beyond even what, what it, it was beyond imagination, what was happening. And in part of it, it would seem to me is that everybody felt they were unsafe because the people who were killed in this were people who ostensibly, uh, you know, were the untouchables, uh, Sharon Tate, uh, the, 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 the great actress. Uh, and then you had the La Biancas who were very accomplished in their field and retailing and grocery and so forth. I mean, these were the people who were, quote, supposed to be safe. And yet um, they were stricken just as the same as, as anybody else. It kind of it kind of broke down that say, a sense maybe of 
uh, invulnerability for celebrities and people who were living the good life. Like, boy, if, if Manson and his crew can get to those people, they could get to anybody. Absolutely. And actually, um, Manson, in many ways, could get to anybody. Uh, and, and we see that even during the trial with some of the ways that he intimidated witnesses, um, got the co-defendants to throw themselves under the bus. He, he was uh, very powerful in, in ways that I don't think people understood, but in retrospect, especially um, as I learned by working on this book, even more so than what I learned by working on Diane Lake's book, he was powerful. Um, he was um, not only highly manipulative, but he he really had no conscience. And his one goal was to save his own life. So he would have his acolytes who still believed in him or the people he intimidated and threatened with death. And they knew he was capable of it. Uh, he got them to do things for him and for his benefit. Uh, very, very scary time. Um, you know, and I think people created this legend um, around Manson, like we did in the early part of the century, um, of the 20th century, or, or in the late um, 1800s, where we would, um, it, where we were so fascinated with, with uh, Jesse James um, the outlaws. Uh, then we became fascinated with Bonnie and Clyde. There's always this fascination with the people who go against the so-called establishment. And to this day, people believe Manson was not guilty. He had no control over these people. He, he was not a cult leader, <laughs> or they think he was a brilliant person who was right with what he was teaching. And, uh, you know, it's so appalling and, you know, as a, as a, again, this time as a journalist, but more as a lawyer who went through law school and, ha, you know, I have great respect for uh, whatever people can say about lawyers, you know, and what they think about them as people or even in practice. What we are taught as lawyers and what we learn about the law itself is auspicious. I mean, I, I have great respect for it. and. Uh, you know, he had no respect for it. And when you see how this trial unfolded with this blueprint that, um, you know, jury foreman Tubic left for posterity and then see what was happening behind the scenes, what Manson was trying to do to undermine our legal system, you get a whole different perspective of who he was and what he was doing. You know, I don't think anybody could logically argue that he was, you know, in any way, shape, or form, not accountable. Is it fair to say that he was a very smart individual, but in a very twisted way? I mean, intelligence and goodness, uh, you know, they don't have to be linked. You can be a, uh, intelligent and, and pretty evil. Um, was he an extremely intelligent person, in your view, in a twisted way? Oh, I think so. Um, I actually think. He had a certain level of genius, um, but, you know, some people say that some of our greatest 
politicians and leaders, and I'm not a political person, so don't take this as a statement about any any particular leader. But instead, you know, I've studied um, uh, psychopaths, I've studied sociopaths. You know, they if they use it for good, um, you know, their drive and their ability to manipulate, um, it, they become quite often leaders and and um, they can accomplish a great deal. What Manson had was this native intelligence um, that had he been able to channel it in a positive way, um, he was outsmarting these lawyers and, uh, you know, left and right. And his arguments, he I could follow, especially because I was a trial lawyer, I could follow now, uh, you know, in hindsight, some of the ways that he was trying to control and manipulate the trial. And he had a full awareness of what evidence would be prejudicial, what arguments could create doubt um, uh, so that he might be found not guilty. He was in charge of everything. But, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion, I believe he was totally delusional. Um, I mean, I do believe that he believed in uh, the theories that were espoused um, during the trial of his motives. And I do believe that he had a messianic complex. And and I do believe that in that sense, he was, uh, as I'll put it in, in vernacular, he was off the rails. On the other hand, he was kind of a cognitive psychopath who could look at a person, immediately figure out their needs, their vulnerabilities, and he could become whatever they needed. The difference is if a person is a, you know, is a healthy person, if they have that kind of empathy, they might also care. You know, he had that empathy, but didn't care. He had no ability to really. Um, you know, go fully into what empathy is. So to answer your original question, um, I think the, the danger was his, his, his native intelligence. And so when you combine that with someone who is so damaged throughout his life and then reaches this pinnacle of rage against everyone and against society, and then, you know, then he, one of the, oh goodness, in the book, I excerpted a piece of the original transcript that I thought was fascinating. He, all throughout the trial, people who've studied the trial, they, they know that there would be times when he would stand up and, and the other girl, you know, the girls would stand up and they would act out. They would shout at the judge. They would do all these things to disrupt he says it right in this transcript that was not in front of the jury in the beginning of the trial while they are um, it, while they are impaneling the jury. He has this conversation where the with the judge where he basically says, if I'm not allowed to represent myself, I have only a couple of choices. And one of them is to be something he said, like a, a petulant child is to act like a child if you're not going to let me do what I want to do. So he basically says, this is what I'm going to do. And that's how he, he does it. He does it, you know, and he said he tries to be in full control. It's amazing to me. 
Now, uh, did did Tubic come down on the side of evil versus some kind of mental issue? In other words, uh, and I'll ask you the same, and maybe you have different uh, viewpoints on this. Was he simply just mentally deranged, or was there an element of true evil? What did what did Tubic think? What do you think? I don't think that was a question that um, that uh, jury foreman Tubic asked or considered. He was there to evaluate the evidence and to uh, render a verdict based on the evidence. He he did not consider anything beyond that. Um, he was a very religious man. He was, um, you know, Catholicism, especially back then, was um, it was before anyone would associate Catholicism with scandal or anything improper. This was their life. They have they had two daughters who became nuns. Oh, wow. So his perspective was more. I have been given this sacred trust. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And I am not going to prejudge the evidence until we discuss it piece by piece in in the deliberation room. And what he did do is prior to the deliberation each day, they, I think, deliberated for eight days. He would have all of them uh, say a prayer, uh, a silent prayer. And they commented later how much that meant to them so that they could really ask to be given um, the strength and the wisdom to render the proper verdict. So to answer your question, I know that they would have found the crimes to have been horrifying, but he treated, he treated each defendant as a person on trial with the right to a fair trial um, and did not comment. Uh, maybe in the book, they may have, his wife may have said something about, um, you know, the evil of the, of the crimes. Now, my own opinion, I also won't, I, I, I can't really say whether, you know, Manson was evil or not evil. I think we all answer, uh, you know, my personal belief, of course, is that we answer to this much higher authority and that we each day are given choices to do good or to do the wrong thing, which we would say is evil. Um, I think he was insane. And I think he was uh, a terrified person. And I think he ultimately was was um, losing his control. He was a con man um, and he was losing his control. And so that rage was building up in him like a volcano. And what I what I would rather focus on than making a, a you know, an armchair determination of was he good and evil is I felt that Judge Older who had to deal with so much of Manson's antics and manipulations, the lawyers that, that his lawyers manipulations, 
everything, he held to the law. And to me, the essence of the law and the essence of our constitution is truly a spiritual thing. Um, you know, whatever people say about it, you know, those laws exist for a reason. And many of them are timeless. And if you hold to that, he created this boundary so that justice was served. That, you know, it, it wasn't like any, it, it, Manson was unable to undermine the legal, the legal system because of, uh, in my opinion, as much as I, I think, um, you know, of course, I think Jury Foreman Tubic was amazing. And he he created this energy in the deliberation room of we are going to do this the right way. I don't know if that happens in other deliberations. I know from reading his notes and, and knowing his story that they did it the right way. They really did not go into that deliberation room with a, a you know, preconceived we're going to just, hey, yeah, he's guilty. No, they went, they took eight days to go through all of over 20,000 pages of transcript. They didn't go through 20,000 pages of transcript. They went through their notes and they went through, you know, whatever evidence they could look at in, in the, um, you know, in the jury room. And that's how they rendered their decision. They took it very seriously. Um, so that's, you know, I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. Um- here's what I don't understand uh, about this case. Uh, I mean, I can understand how one man might be so deranged that he would basically order people to, to kill others in cold blood. I don't understand why those people would go through with it. I, I, I mean, I love my family, but I can't think of a person in my family who could say, Hey, go kill this person in cold blood. And I do it. I, 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 I wouldn't. Now, uh, if it's self-defense or something like that, uh, I, I, I can understand how those kind of things happen. I understand how, you know, maybe people get in an argument and somebody hits somebody and they slip and hit their head. You know, that old uh, kind of thing that we see on the on the TV shows and, and that kind of thing. But I don't understand how another person would accept that order to kill somebody in cold blood. Why um, did they? I, I why did they? Yeah, I, why? Why? I can certainly address that because I've also been um, for for many years, even prior to working on the book with Diane, I uh, Diane Lake. I was fascinated with how do people wind up in cults? How was, for example, Jim Jones able to get people? to drink uh, the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and commit mass suicide. You know, how, how was, um, you know, why did, uh, why did other cults end up either, um, you know, killing themselves or, uh, you know, David Koresh, they wound up, it was almost like committing suicide because they got into, you know, uh, the gunfight with, um, the ATF, um, and then everything, the, I mean, it turned into a disaster. We have to look at cults. We have to look at programming and undue influence over other human beings. And this is really how someone 
could become an extension of a person and to do their bidding. It, it, it really stems from who they perceive that person to be. If down is up and up is down, and you re- if you believed that person was God, you might be inclined to do what you thought God wanted you to do. But it doesn't happen overnight. They were programmed over time and their loss of connection to outer reality happened over time where, um, you know, he would preach to them. He would fill, fill their heads with his vision of, um, you know, what was called helter skelter. We're going to have an apocalypse. Um, it's not as far fetched as we believe when we look at it, you know, through a lens of, well, I could never do that. Um, the people who he chose to actually commit the crimes may have been more inclined to follow his orders. Um, he, there were reasons why he didn't choose some of the others. Maybe he felt they weren't as dedicated to him. Maybe he, uh, you know, he, there were reasons that not everybody went those two nights. They had to have fully believed in what he asked them to do. And uh, I think it, it will always remain a mystery to us as we look back and say, well, how could they have done that? You know, it was a it was a horrible choice. And they believed that they were uh, carrying out this beginning of this um, of this apocalyptic war. That's one of the theories. Whatever it was, I know that with Tex Watson, because of what I learned from doing the book with Diane Lake, he, he when he told her what happened and he showed her the headline on the paper of these murders, he said, um, I did this. Charlie told me to. And they they felt that they were this, you know, this army on the run. And then they hid out in Death Valley and they really believed that there was a bottomless pit and that they were going to uh, go into this bottomless pit and they were going to wait out the race war. And. I've seen, you know, we think it sounds crazy, but if you examine any kind of cult, a cult is created through, uh, you know, programming. It's They all follow a certain belief system. There's usually a leader. Uh, there's undue influence. They're segregated from the outside world. And then they're often taken to a remote location so that the only reality that they have is what is given to them. And they become dependent on this group like a family. So again, can we, you know, you don't, you know, you're very likely not a psychopath and you're not in a cult. (laughs) And that's why you can't imagine doing something like that. That that, that makes perfect sense. Now, now you talked about uh, Mr. Tubick and how he felt uh, or or a little bit about 
Manson's kind of antics. How did he feel about the other side, uh, law enforcement, the prosecution? Uh, did he feel they did a, did a good job? Uh, and what were his thoughts on, on that side of the, the fence? They all felt very um, protected and, and uh, by the law enforcement because they were actually at risk. So they were always surrounded by um, deputies, sheriffs, um, the bailiffs. They were sequestered in their hotels, but they had to be, you know, led to and, and from the hotels, um, really with with guards. Uh, they didn't know how many threats were made against them. Uh, they would be uh, eventually uh, they would be transported in buses that had the windows blocked out. Um, and so they felt a, a kinship with the deputies. Um, and, you know, it wasn't that they were thinking that, uh, you know, all the police officers and law enforcement uh, in terms of the testimony that they were right and everyone else was wrong. But in terms of their direct connection with law enforcement, um, they became the lifeline uh, and also became their friends because, you know, they helped escort them out of the, um, you know, they took them on um, little outings so they wouldn't go crazy and, and stir crazy, uh, being essentially locked up uh, in a hotel for that long. So, you know, the, the law enforcement officers who were part of that um, were very important to them, and they had great respect for them. And they were, you know, a tremendous gratitude. They were taken, you know, they they were taken to restaurants, and they knew that they were they were going to be protected if anyone tried to harm them or their families. That had to be very difficult because I've got to believe not only uh, separated from your family, but also. Uh, I'm assuming that they didn't have access to media. And remember, at that time, it's not like you could click on the streaming service or watch a DVD or anything like that. Uh, you know, none of that really existed. So they probably couldn't access, uh, you know, periodicals, newspapers, TV news, certainly. And I, I even wonder you know, what, what they could use to entertain themselves, cut off from family. I can't even imagine. I think maybe the world was a little different then. And, and Oh, just slight. Think yeah. about a world. Uh, and, and although it's revealing my age, um, I do remember when uh, we didn't even have phone answering machines. Right. Um, you know, too. back in the day, if you, if you were waiting for a boy to call, you had to wait. Yeah. And you just sat home hoping the phone would ring. Uh, and then you wrestled your siblings to get to it first. <laughs> um, you know, so, yeah, they they were really sequestered. And and what that meant was separate from everything, including media. And what I love also about um, uh, Herman's depiction in his book is he explains what it was like and what they did to entertain themselves they would play cards, they would play table tennis, they would swim, you know, they would read, but it had to be something that was certainly not related to this. They were not permitted uh, to read the news. They were not permitted to watch the news. They would bring them old films. He would call them old time films, comedies, and they could see movies. 
Um, you know, they were taken on outings to, I think they went to Knott's Berry Farm once, possibly. I'm not, I, I may be mixing that up. I know, um, oddly enough, they went to um, visit uh, a ship that was docked in Terminal Island. And the um, real coincidence is that's where uh, Manson, the other side of the island is the prison. And that's where he was before he rejoined society. Um, so, you know, that was an interesting outing and coincidence. Uh, but they had to entertain themselves. Eventually, they became so, uh, I guess, you know, they had such cabin fever that they were making pranks with each other. And, you know, it, it, and they are really funny. And so, um, you know, Herman uh, puts that in the book of how they did, you know, I think one time they took the doors off uh, one of the jurors hotel rooms and then put a sign over it saying open house. I mean, they just were going <laughs> crazy. So they started yeah, that had really, to be tough. bonding and having fun that way. And if you were a good sport, you joined in. What is some of the most important new information you think this book brings? On a global level, I think seeing the big picture of first the blueprint of what was important in each witness's testimony as it was perceived by a juror is a really important perspective that this book gives that you don't find anywhere else. And then that was all in front of the jury. So that was what they perceived and used to render their decision. The second thing is what I, I very gratefully added from the original transcript, which showed if, for example, the jury saw that Manson was acting out or whatever, or running to the judge and trying to stamp him with a pencil, you know, I, I went to that same date in the original trial transcript and saw what was then going to happen in the judge's chambers where the lawyers are arguing and Manson's arguing and he's saying he's threatening the judge. So the reader gets this new perspective of what the jury was seeing and what Manson was doing. And I think some of these things are found all over the place, but never before in this linear fashion where you can actually see it, you know, black and white, what, what Manson was all about. The other thing that's new that, that I thought was very interesting is I was able to talk with a, um, a juror who's still living. He was only 24 at the time. And uh, he said that when they went into deliberations, he was actually not convinced that Leslie Van Houten, who's been up for parole many times, should have been held to the same um, level of crime as the others. Now, of course, that is also a major revelation because there was nothing that could be done about that. She gave up her ability to have a, a zealous representative. And in fact, her lawyer disappeared during the trial. And they speculated that that was due to um, Demanson. Um, and so that was, uh, so she, he wanted to separate her from Manson's defense. Manson wound up manipulating all the lawyers to try the case together. Um, and eventually, um, 
you know, you see that they decide unanimously that she was, in fact, guilty. But the fact that there was some discussion of of her and her the part she played, I think, is real is real historic information Um, because it, it, it sheds more light on the fact that Manson really caused all of these women to essentially, um, I've used this term before, I may have even said it today, to throw themselves under the bus. And they gave up any any opportunity to not be found uh, equally guilty and to be given the death sentence. People forget they were given the death sentence. They were not given life in prison with possibility of parole. None of them. They were sentenced to death. Well, I've got to say, and then the, the being sentenced to death, but that didn't come through because California did away with the death penalty, correct? Temporarily. And then a few years later, they reinstated it. So <laughs> I don't know if, if the universe just wanted Manson to you know, become part of the collective consciousness for all these years so that we could continue to evaluate it and study it. For me, it's it's been a wonderful opportunity. And I think all all potential trial lawyers should study this case um, to see how someone like this could try to undermine uh, the legal system and how he almost got away with it. Uh, I don't think he ever would have been acquitted, but who knows? You know, um, the prosec- the prosecution really had to work for it, in my opinion, in looking at it from the jury's perspective and then from the transcript. I truly believe that they proved their case um, and that, you know, justice was done, but it wasn't a slam dunk. Um, and it's just it, it's just a fascinating piece of history. Uh, so I'm I'm thrilled that I've unwittingly become or or let's just say uh, unexpectedly become a cult and uh, Manson expert um, because it's just something that uh, captures our interest. But it's also something uh, from which we can learn many, many things. Uh, it's it's got so many levels. So this is my you know, my second Manson book. Um, not sure if there's going to be a third. There might be. Well, we must stay tuned. But in the meantime, this book we're talking about, Inside the Manson Jury. Now, this will come out towards the end of July, beginning of August. Um, can you tell us how and where we can find it? It is available for those who just want to get a jump on it. It is available um by going to mansonbook.com it will officially be published and in stores probably mid uh, late late july early august um and uh or it'll be imminent um we're now uh just we wanted to make it widely available and so you know the process of publishing is that you know, you print books and then you get them into the stores. So, uh, and it'll also be available uh, imminently um, on uh, uh, Amazon Kindle. 
Now, another little bonus is it's it has at least 30 or more illustrations. Um, we uh, commissioned a wonderful artist to do um, ink drawings of the witnesses, and they are uncanny and they're beautifully done. And they've captured the essence of what uh, each of these uh, each of the people really, you know, what they look like. So it's a very uh, I, I love this book. Um, and I think for anyone who's a Manson aficionado, it needs to be on their shelf. Um, again, mansonbook.com. And we also have a Facebook page and, you know, we are able to answer any questions at this point. Um, you know, I love, I welcome questions because you never run out of things to examine with, um, you know, whether it's from in from the experience of being part of the cult, as Diane Lake um, depicted and as we did in her memoir, or whether it's the aftermath and then the implications years later. And and what I really want people to remember are the victims. This was so horrible. And, you know, they the book, uh, this book really includes, for example, the coroner's testimony and what was important. Um, you know, we can't forget that even though we're fascinated by cults, we're fascinated by Manson and the times and, you know, what it was like, there were real victims. And even though Sharon Tate was this wonderful, bigger than life, beautiful actress, she was also a human being who was about to be a mother. And you know, there are some really awful revelations as you look at the coroner's report of exactly what was done to her. Um, it's, it's really awful. And so it's very hard to reconcile all of that. Um, you know, so uh, that's another reason that I'm so interested in bringing facts to the people who are uh, so interested in this subject. Well, we really need to see the facts. Certainly, this brings a new perspective to it and information you couldn't get in the past. So I, I think if you're interested in the Manson case, this is a must read. It's called Inside the Manson Jury, From Deliberation to Death Sentence, and our guest has been co-author Deborah Herman. Deborah, thank you for joining us today on The Crime Scene. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into the crime scene. We appreciate it. And I'm sure Deborah will agree. Be careful out there. We'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.